Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Codd. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. This week on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I explore rock's literary side and discuss the best lyricists in pop music. Plus, we'll review new records from rock and roll veteran Neil Young and the Canadian indie popsters Metric. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. What you're hearing there is a little bit of the closing jam session at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony in Cleveland in the last few days. That is the band Metallica, one of the new inductees, jamming with Aerosmith's Joe Perry, the Red Hot Chili Peppers' Flea, Jeff Beck, who was also inducted this year, Jimmy Page, formerly of Led Zeppelin. Every year they do this, Jim, where they have a big jam session at the end for the customers the suit and tie set of record company elite and VIPs that attend the ceremony every year. Only the second time that it's actually been done in Cleveland, which is the site of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Most years it's done at the uh, Waldorf Astoria in New York City. This year being an exception where they brought it back to the Midwest and inducted alongside Metallica, Run DMC, Jeff Beck, Bobby Womack, Little Anthony and the Imperials. We have been on our uh, bully pulpit when it comes to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's when a it joke. When it comes to who's left out. And in this year's ceremony, in this year's induction speeches, James Hetfield of Metallica did a very nice job of doing some complaining for us. He mentioned Deep Purple, Thin Lizzy, Rush, Kiss, Ted Nugent, Iron Maiden, Motorhead, all bands that he felt deserved to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ahead of Metallica. I'd agree with most of those choices. I think heavy music, hard rock has been an ignored element in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for a long, long time. I'm thinking about one of uh, Metallica's contemporaries. If you're going to induct one of the elite metal bands of that second wave of metal from the 80s, like Metallica, Slayer should be right up there with them. The problem, Greg, is is that you you have people who invented the genre because Black Sabbath was eligible for years before it finally got in, only in the last few years. Deep Purple was right there beside Sabbath inventing this sound. They're not in. And I'll tell you why. Because Rolling Stone magazine and Jan Wenner, its founder and publisher, has an undue influence on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Rolling Stone and Jan Wenner have never liked heavy metal. They don't like progressive rock either. Also eligible, yes, Genesis, Jethro Tull, Rush, as Hetfield said, none of them are in. Love them or hate them, they've been around for 40 years and they invented an entire sound. And you have Little Anthony and the Imperials getting in before any of these bands that sold hundreds of millions of albums. Future needs a big kiss, winds blow with a twist. Never seen a move like this, can you see it too? Night is falling everywhere, rockets at the fun fest. Satan loves a bomb scare. 
Greg, perfectly timed to the second round of ticket sales for U2's upcoming tour. New York Senator Chuck Schumer last week introduced some legislation that is, he says, an attempt to get a handle on scalpers or secondary market ticket sales. Schumer is rapidly becoming the senator from the state of rock and roll. Uh, <laughs> he, he realized how much attention he got for criticizing Ticketmaster for its sales of the Bruce Springsteen tour, and now he's riding this issue, which is not a bad thing, because scalping is a plague mm-hmm. on the music industry, the live music industry in America. Now more than ever, when you have all of these secondary market sites, online scalping sites that always mysteriously seem to get tickets way before the average (laughs) customer. U2's sales were exactly the same situation as Bruce Springsteen, where people logged on, they tried to buy tickets within two minutes in most markets across the country. Mm -hmm. Those tickets were sold out, and yet somehow... You know, minutes after the sales ended, there were hundreds of tickets listed for incredibly marked up prices on the secondary websites like StubHub and Tickets Now, which is owned by Ticketmaster. How does that happen? Schumer is proposing a law that will kind of curb it, he says. There will have to be a two-day waiting period from the initial on sale before any of the ticket resellers can buy tickets and put them up on secondary sites. What's more, they are going to have to register with the Federal Trade Commission and get a number and list that number beside any offer they have on the market. It's not exactly clear if a show is sold out how the resellers would get tickets or what would stop them from going underground because remember they have these computer programs you or i can log on you know we have a one in a thousand chance of getting a good seat they have these programs that make a thousand calls in the same 30 second period Mm -hmm. that we can get on there once none of that is clear but at least it's a first step he's going to bring it to the whole senate would have to go for a vote and eventually president obama would have to sign it or veto it That is a track from the Love Remix album that came out in 2006 of the Beatles music for the Cirque du Soleil Las Vegas tribute to the band. And the reason we're playing it is that it ushers in our next news story very nicely. The Beatles announced this week that their entire back catalog is finally going to be remastered and repackaged on compact discs. This is the first major overhaul of the band's music in uh, more than 20 years. 1987, the Beatles' music first came out on compact disc, and ever since, a number of those records really haven't been touched, really haven't been updated with computer technology. One of the big problems with the original CD reissues in 87 was that they were merely digital copies of electronically processed tapes of the original recordings. In Mm. other words, the fidelity was not very good. The Love Remix Project, the engineers went back to the original master tapes and worked with the best Pro Tools technology to bring it up to date, and there was a new clarity, a new fidelity, a sense of hearing this music anew that got Beatles fans really excited about what these CDs might sound like. Now we're finally going to get a chance. In September, the entire back catalog is going to be reissued, repackaged. There are going to be separate box sets for stereo and mono versions of the box set. Cynically... 
Let's look at this from the Beatles' standpoint. This is not just an attempt to sate the fans who want to hear how this music is going to sound. It's another attempt to resell the back catalog yet again you to know, a new generation of I'll, fans. I'll tell you what this is, Greg. This is going to go down in history as the last gasp of the old-school music industry and its faith in the compact disc. Because... The Beatles are going, you know, they're still talking about when their music will be available as digital downloads. Doesn't seem anywhere on the horizon. They're putting all their eggs in this basket. Let's sell people this stuff mm-hmm. one more time right. on plastic. You know, <laughs> they bought it on vinyl. They bought it on cassette. They bought it on 8-track. They bought it on compact disc. They bought it repackaged in a box set. And now we're going to give it to them one more time. And I think that's going to be it. I think after that, there's not, never going to be CDs anymore. Well, and, and then in the spring, there, there's going to be the big rollout on iTunes or some other music merchandiser. So, uh, you know, they will resell it yet again, but as you said, in a different format. How many times do you need to own I Want to Hold Your Hand? Really? That is Elvis Costello, Every Day I Write the Book. I think, Greg, uh, there is a long history of rock and roll musicians who have wanted to be considered in the literary world. They've either written books, uh, published their own poetry, aspired to be held in the esteem of authors. We've been thinking a lot about this because we recently got invited down to Washington College in Maryland to speak about when rock and roll works as literature, when literature is rock and roll. I kind of handled the second half of that and did the great rock critics who stand up as yeah. literature, and you did the first. And you done a fine job. You did, Professor Cott. <laughs> uh, the rock doctors became professors for the weekend. We talked about this. So, so we thought we'd bring it to the show and talk about when lyrics qualify as great poetry or literature that can stand on their own if they do at all. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an interesting question because lyrics are basically not meant to stand alone. They're meant to be part of something else, a.k.a. a song. It always bothered me when uh, people would talk about Dylan's lyrics apart from the way he delivered them, for example. Yeah. But I We think, try not to be those kind of rock critics that just read the lyric sheet. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I think the case can be made, and we're going to try to make it, that there are lyricists and songs in the rock lexicon that definitely stand up to that kind of scrutiny. You can separate the lyrics out and say, wow, that's a pretty amazing piece of uh, literature right there. Obviously, this is going to be a quick primer because we could teach a graduate course in this, but we'll try to give you some ideas. And as always, when we do a show like this, we start with the traditional coin toss. I think instead of our favorite rock critics, we should put our favorite authors. I'm going to go with Jack Kerouac on my side of the coin. I'll take Flannery O'Connor. Oh, oh, that's (laughs) – wow, very impressive. Okay, and there it goes, and – Flannery O'Connor, Professor Cott, it is. Thank you, Jim. I'm going to start with a song written by Brian Ferry of Roxy Music for the band's 1973 album, For Your Pleasure. In the 60s, before Roxy Music formed, Ferry was an art student studying under Richard Hamilton, who was famous for doing these collages, commentaries on uh, modern life. And one of his most famous pieces was called In Every Dream Home, A Heartache. Ferry, in turn, wrote a song about that collage. And the song, In Every Dream Home a Heartache, functions both as a piece of art criticism, a description of what's going on in that collage, and then in the second verse, extrapolates as to what these people might be actually doing in this dream home. So he's talking about this perfect setting. 
you know, you've got the buff husband, you've got the beautiful wife, you've got beautiful paintings on the wall, you've got this idyllic setting. Uh, These people are obviously very wealthy. They have every material possession you could possibly want. What are they lacking? Well, in the second verse of In Every Dream Home of Heartache, Ferry takes that on in very eye-popping fashion. I think it's a great song because it operates on these different levels, as art criticism, as a critique of not only the painting, but for what he saw as the vacuity of modern life in the UK. So he was out to make a commentary on the world he saw around him and what was lacking in it. And I think he did it expertly in this song. It's blank verse. There's you know, no attempt to rhyme here, but I think this works incredibly well as poetry and separated from the song itself. It's a beautiful piece of writing, but it is only enhanced by the musical backing of, of uh, Roxy Music. Brian Eno in particular playing this pattern on the synthesizer that enhances the creepy mood in this song. So here it is, In Every Dream Home a Heartache from Roxy Music on Sound Opinions. Open plan living Bungalow ranch style All of its comforts Seem so essential I bought you mail order My plain wrapper, baby Your skin is like vinyl The perfect companion You float in my new pool Deluxe and delightful Inflatable doll My role is to serve you Disposable darling Can't throw you away away now Immortal and life-size My breath is inside you I'll dress you up daily And keep you till death size Inflatable doll Lover ungrateful I blew up your body But you blew my mind In every dream home, a heartache. Brian Ferry making love to his immortal and life-size blow-up doll. <laughs> I love the idea of Ferry as lyricist being an art critic. Uh, you know, it's very Oscar Wilde, the yes. critic as artist. Right. A notion we subscribe to. Greg, I am going to talk about 
lyrics that stand up as great lyrics, but that were inspired by wonderful books. So it has to have been a book I admired that inspired some lyrics that I really admire. I don't think we think of the Rolling Stones as readers, but tell me if this line is familiar. Please excuse me, he said, speaking correctly, but with a foreign accent, for presuming to speak to you without an introduction. <laughs> Do you know what that is? No. That's from a, a great Russian novel by Mikhail Bulgakov, The Master and Margarita, in which uh, Satan puts on human disguise and right, seduces right. this young mistress. Talks a lot about when Pontius Pilate, his favorite Bible verse is when Pontius Pilate washes his hands to seal Christ's fate. Does that sound familiar at all? <laughs> you know, Mick Jagger, who loves to, uh, much like Bob Dylan, never loves to admit any source of inspiration. He always said that Sympathy for the Devil, the incredible opening track of 1968's Beggar's Banquet, was inspired by Baudelaire. Mm-hmm. But, but it really was this Russian novel that gave him the idea of of this Forrest Gump-like Satan who is there when, when JFK is shot and, and when, when Jesus had his moment of doubt and pain. And what a great lyric. I mean, you can read this as a story. I think it really builds on that classic novel. And it's just, uh, the Rolling Stones at their very best. I don't think Jagger gets enough credit sometimes for being a uh, witty and insightful lyricist. Anyway, Sympathy for the Devil by the Stones. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man. Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones, rewriting the Russian novelist Mikhail Bulgakov. We're going to talk more about rock as literature, literature as rock and roll on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Plus, later on in the show, we're going to review the new albums from Neil Young and Metric. Please to meet you. Hope you get my 
Jesus died for somebody's sins but not mine Milton pot of thieves wild cord of my sleeve thick heart of stone my sins my own they belong to me me Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And uh, we are talking about rock as literature, literature as rock. The idea that uh, lyric writing can be poetic in popular music. I think uh, what you're hearing now is a great example of that. Uh, Patti Smith, the opening lines from her very first album, her cover, a very loose cover, of Van Morrison's song Gloria, in which she, she completely reinterpreted the song and uh, those opening lines still send chills down my spine Jesus died for somebody's sins but not mine that grabs your attention right away that's about as good as a lyric gets exactly and we're going to explore some other songs that aspire to that level of greatness I've got one here Jim it is by a hip-hop group called Cannibal Ox that in 2001 released an album that I still think is one of the top albums of the last decade called The Cold Vein Basically, this this is a duo, two MCs, Vast Air and Vordul Megala, working with a producer named LP, Jamie Moline. We've reviewed LP's solo records on this show, and uh, he's an incredibly gifted lyricist himself, but he's also a great, great producer. He sets the table for the lyricists in this album with a production style that can only be described as futuristic. There's almost like a, a science fiction setting going on here, like some kind of other world, some forbidden planet. But what, in fact, they're talking about is the fringe of New York City, the the part of New York City that nobody sees. We talk about New York City as being the cultural capital of the world in a lot of ways, but there's a lot of destitution, a lot of poverty, a lot of misery, a lot of crime, a lot of death in New York. And in this song that I'm going to play, Iron Galaxy, it's an extension of what was happening in L.A. in the 80s when when, uh, a lot of the gangster rappers in their earliest incarnation were talking about the issues in that city, the stuff that was not being seen on the nightly news, the stuff that inspired uh, Chuck D of Public Enemy to call rap the black CNN. And in the same year of 9-11, those tragic incidents that uh, killed so many people in New York City, there was another side of that city that really wasn't seen at all. And that's what's going on in this song. What we get is great street reporting. I'm going to play the second verse from Iron Galaxy from Cannibal Ox on Sound Opinions. Yo, son, did yo, you see yo. that kid, yo? Chill out, Yo, man. son, Chill did out. you, yo, son, he pulled it out. Just keep your eyes. Five digits, cock bitty, nine milli, one floor, shot silly, one city, one birth, hit milli, little girl spinning curls, 360, living in a world empty, yo, they spun young earth, now shitty, and why five oh my shoe, black hand, took it story, I sold spacesuit to crack. DTs operate mechanically, popo and slow mo. Black kid locked away, add a key, plus one fourth pound of smoke flow. While blockhead Fabian, Ahmed Arabian, laying in bodeg, holding drama AK, smoke like Asalama OK, choking vodka mixed with OJ, wig splits, mad quick, spinning 360 wave. C4, blue the door, number eight, summer face, tank top with a knot, number 
nine said run the blaze Took my girl stereo CD plus the tape Bro, star, star, don't wet that Puff the face, that stuff to play Jet back to Santa Cruz, California IA, piece of cigar, locked up Cat born, nine ways Come home, mad soon, live ill Life phase, it's like little black girl Got shot, damn it hurts When they spun earth and we're not Gonna make a difference, so we get locked Caught in the ish and losing what we got Come on, black equal Iron Galaxy by Cannibal Ox, Mr. Cott's choice for a, a really impressive lyric. You're absolutely right. As I said, uh, we could do a graduate course on this whole topic. Go on and on and on. <laughs> we're trying to just zoom in on particular aspects of songs we like and uh, and how they were inspired by literature in my case. You know, Ray Davis is one of the great lyricists in rock history. We, we said that to his face when mm-hmm. he was on Sound Opinions a while back because he's such a, a wonderful sociological observer. And then he has the, the novelist skill of taking those little observations of people and putting them into, uh, into poetry. The Village Green Preservation Society by the Kinks in 68 was uh, you know, really their last gasp. They were going down the tubes. They hadn't had hits in a while. And Davis comes up with this idea of a concept album about small-town Hamlet life in England. Mm-hmm. They had played and gotten stuck in some rustic burg in England, and this got it started. Also, he was reading Dylan Thomas's novel, Under Milkwood. There is a lot of Dylan Thomas, if you know his the novelist's work, Throughout, the Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society. The Kinks have the song Polly. Polly Garter is a character in uh, in that Thomas novel. But really, the title track, uh, that's what I want to play. I think it perfectly captures those those banal observations of small-town life that Dylan Thomas had and that, that Davis brings to life. Here are the Kinks, the Village Green Preservation Society on Sound Opinions. We are the Village Green Preservation Society. God save the whole duck for the bill and variety. We are the desperate and appreciation society. God save strawberry jam and all the different varieties. Serving the old ways from being abused. Protecting the new ways for me and for you. What more can we do? We are the draft beer. Preservation Society God save Mrs. Fox And good old Mother Riley We are the custom fire Appreciation Consortium God save George Cross And all those who are loving them God save the little shots, China cups and virginity. We are the skyscraper, condemnation affiliates. God save the Judah houses and the table pavilions. Loving the old ways from being abused. Protecting the new ways for me and for you. What more can we do? Society. God save 
We are the Village Green Preservation Society from the Kinks and the great Ray Davis, one of the great uh, lyricists, no doubt, Jim. I want to flip to a song from that same era, the late 60s, by a man, I think, who is very underrated as a lyricist. Uh, He's celebrated for basically inventing funk music, but not many people realize that buried within those incredible grooves were some of the most forward-thinking and uh, most rewarding lyrics ever written. I'm talking about Sly Stone. In his song, Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself Again, those words are very prescient because he's talking about a lyricist who is coming off a series of hits, self-empowering hits like Stand and Everyday People and Sing a Simple Song about Be Yourself, Take Over the World, Be a Leader. And this song, in, in effect, giving himself permission to deal with what's really on his mind, sort of more of an internal struggle about what's really going on and what he's seeing around him. I think at this point, the fervor of Woodstock was already wearing off, that promise of, yes, we can change the world. And what Sly Stone saw was a world of drugs, a world of darkness, a world where young people were being led astray by the very things they thought would help them change the world. In fact, a prophetic, because Sly Stone himself would fall victim to drug abuse and drop out and basically not be seen for you know, the better part of three decades yeah. soon after this. Within the next year, he would start writing and producing a record called There's a Riot Going On, which in the context of what he had done previously was one of the darkest 180-degree uh, shifts in, in music history, really, for any major artist. And this is the song, I think, that sort of paved the way. If you look at that first verse, looking at the devil, grinning at his gun, fingers start shaking, I begin to run. I mean... That is just gripping stuff. He puts you right in the middle of his personal hell. And the song proceeds in that way. Talk about the dream is over. You know, we're starting over here, and we've got a world of darkness to start struggling through. Here it is, Sly and the Family Stone. Thank you for letting me be myself again on Sound Opinions.
Lie in the Family Stone, thank you for letting me be myself again. Always very hard title to spell, isn't yeah, it, yeah. Greg, when we yeah. write about it in the newspaper. My final pick in our, our discussion, all too brief discussion of rock as literature, is really a quarter century after the kinks, the modern inheritors of that Ray Davis tradition of sociological observation. I think Damon Albarn and Blur are also underrated as lyricists, uh, as, as poetic observers. Park Life, their third album, was inspired in large part, according to Albarn, by Martin Amos's novel, London Fields. Just a couple of years ago, he gave an interview to Q Magazine in the UK and said, that book changed my outlook on life. It's why I wrote Park Life. And uh, Park Life looks at London in the uh, early 90s, the way that uh, Dylan Thomas was looking at rural England or, or, or Davis in picking up that mantle. And there are different characters that come and go throughout the album. Alburn had a background in the theater. He was familiar with plays and scripts, and he's really writing uh, different characters' voices. And I think Daniel's, uh, you know, a real English character actor, brings it to life perfectly. It's like a little stage play in the form of a three-minute pop song. Here's Blur with Park Life on Sound Opinions. Confidence is a preference for the habitual voyeur of what is known as A morning suit can be avoided if you take a route straight through what is known as John's got Brewer's group, he gets intimidated by the dirty pigeons They love a bit of him Who's that gut lord marching? You should cut down on your pork life mate, get some exercise Except on Wednesdays when I get rudely awakened by the dustman. I put my trousers on, have a cup of tea, and I think about leaving the house. I feed the pigeons, I sometimes feed the sparrows too. It gives me a sense of enormous well-being. And then I'm happy for the rest of the day. Safe in the knowledge there will always be a bit of my heart devoted to it. Oh, the 
Park Life by Blur, Jim's final pick for uh, one of his favorite rock lyrics of all time, and a good one. The discussion goes on. We could pick many, many more songs, but we want you to nominate your favorite literary rock song by calling 888-859-1800 or email us at interact at soundopinions.org. Jim and I will be back on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media in just a minute to give you reviews of new albums from Neil Young and Metric. back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a little bit of a song called Cough Up the Bucks by Neil Young from his new album, Fork in the Road. Neil, throughout his long and storied and wonderful career, has uh, had a tendency to get all fired up, get all riled up about something, <laughs> run into the studio, make music about it, and sometimes turn out incredibly enduring art. I'm thinking, of course, about Ohio being about the Kent State mm-hmm. shootings or rocking in the free world. George uh, Bush the first got under his skin and he fired off that response about a thousand points of light. Other times, Neil's turned out some real dreck when... Artists first started selling songs to commercials. You know, he goes in, he gives us this notes for you. Inspired by the story of Flight 93 on 9-11, he gave us Let's Roll. Nobody would say those stand with Neil Young at his best. What's on his mind right now? The need 
for Detroit to shift to electric-powered cars or some other eco-friendly mode of transportation. Neil loves cars. He's always loved cars. When he was in the Buffalo Springfield, he was driving around L.A. in an old hearse that he'd souped up. Now he's all excited. He's got this vintage Lincoln. It's just the body. The interior is apparently an electric-powered motor, Mm -hmm. and he loves this Link Volt, he calls, right? (laughs) So Neil runs into the studio in the midst of touring last year, doing a kind of greatest hit set with his regular band of the last few years, Ben Keith on pedal steel, Rick Rosas on bass, Peggy Young, his wife, on backing vocals, and he turns out this album, Quick and Dirty, Fork in the Road, all about electric cars and how we need them and how cars are going to be great but only if they can be clean we rate things on the buy it burn it trash it scale we're going to come back and give our opinions on this in a minute let's hear a song called Johnny Magic by Neil Young from Fork in the Road on Sound Opinions Johnny Magic had a way with Johnny Magic from the new Neil Young record, Fork in the Road, hearkening back to his Rust Never Sleeps era when he had those chants of Johnny Rotten, now we have Johnny Magic. Yeah, The 21st century version of that. And in fact, Jim, a lot of this album sounds like recycled Neil. Stuff that he's done before, little references to uh, different songs throughout his career, repackaged as a new album, sort of a, a series of vignettes from the road. There's a lot of travel log type of references on this record. He's talking about the Rio Grande and Route 66, and he's in Wichita, and then there's the Endless Highway and the Promised Land. Yeah. And meanwhile, he's commenting on the road as he's seeing, uh, you know, the country in, in dire straits. Basically, today's headlines 
in music. Neil was starting to perform these songs on his last tour. You're always excited to hear new Neil Young music, stuff that you don't, you're not really prepared for, mm-hmm. and in, inevitably he'll give you two or three songs. Well, by the end of the tour, he was playing eight or nine of these new songs on the road, and the general consensus at that time was, uh, boy, I hope uh, he keeps working on this new record because uh, the songs really aren't there. Not and quite I, done yet. Yeah. And I have to say that this record really feels half-baked to me. It feels like a series of vamps knocked off in the studio, not a lot of time put in, not a lot of thought put in the lyrics. Okay, he's got, he's got this, these issues with pollution and electric cars and let's fix the world. He's not really telling us something we don't already know. So, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you didn't know about the awesome power of electricity <laughs> yeah. stored in a giant battery? You're that, ma- that's actually one of the lyrics. You're making my case very well for me. Uh-huh. I, I think on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, as a huge Neil Young fan, it pains me to say this, but this is a trash it record by Neil Young standards. I cannot give it a trash it, Greg. I find it inspiring just that at age 63 and a legendary guy who's about to put out not one, but over the next couple of years, five mm. 10 CD box sets of his own work. I like that he can be st- still so crazy and just <laughs> go in and that this was on his mind and he was mad yeah. and he ripped it off. My problem is musically. Uh, even the lyrics that are kind of cringeworthy – we can forgive those, but the musical uh, chop shop approach of a little bit of crazy horse there, a little bit of harvest uh, folky harmony there. He needed another six months to polish these tunes, but still, it, you got to burn it because it's Neil Young, and <laughs> even Neil Young at his worst at trans is still is still Neil Young. <laughs> That's a song called Help, I'm Alive from Metric's fourth studio album, Fantasies. Metric, a Toronto-based quartet that formed around a songwriting production partnership, Emily Haynes and Jimmy Shaw. They traveled the world looking for gigs in the late 90s, early 2000s. They were based in London for a while, in New York, hung around the uh, New York scene when the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs were forming. In fact, they they shared a... uh, a warehouse uh, with that band when they were in their early incarnation, and then returned to Toronto full of inspiration just to catch this new wave of uh, Toronto bands that were emerging around that time. Very exciting scene. Bands like Broken Social Scene and Stars and Hidden Cameras and Feist were starting to emerge. Metric came up alongside those bands. The band at its core, again, is, is primarily built around Haynes and her synthesizers and lyrics, her father was a uh, famous poet, Paul Haynes, who worked with some jazz musicians like uh, Carla Blay, and uh, Jimmy Shaw, who is a, uh, one of the co-songwriters in the band, producer and guitar player. Fourth album called Fantasies. Let's play a track from it before we review it. Here it is. It's called Gimme Sympathy from Metric on Sound Opinions. Get hot, get too close to the flame, wild open space. Talk like an open book Sign me up Got no time to 
Give Me Sympathy by the Toronto-based band Metric on Sound Opinions, asking the immortal question. And it's truly shocking that there hasn't been a great song written with this idea before. Who'd you rather be, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? I mean, everybody wants to be the Stones, right? The Stones were the bad boys. They had more fun. Right. Beatles have more money. Well, the Stones are more. The Stones are alive. I don't know. What a conundrum. What a dilemma. That is a pure pop pleasure, and so is the rest of this album. In the four years since uh, Metric's last album, Live It Out, I think that they've become uh, probably much better known as members of that Canadian supergroup, Broken Social Scene. But Metric's uh, new one is a real welcome reminder of what is so wonderful about this band, which I can only compare to, like, an absolutely winning merger of Garbage and Ladytron. Mm. The best of that kind of, uh, you know, sleek, electro-pop, futuristic, but somehow retro, new wave thing with really sassy, sexy, alluring, and very smart lyrics from Emily Haynes. Absolutely a winner, Greg. Uh On the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, definitely a buy it. Well, Haynes uh, has really grown, I think, as a songwriter on this record. Uh, She went away and made a solo record that I think really factored into this. There's a sense of introspection in, in that solo record that she brings to this music. But more importantly, and I think you touched on it, was the whole idea of these melodies just rushing at you. This is by far the most streamlined and direct metric record yet. In the past, they'd been a little bit jagged. Uh, they, they tended to go off on, a little, on a, some tangents. This time, they're just going for the gold. You know, we're going to make some big rock songs here. In fact, the last song on the record is called Stadium Love. It's almost a commentary on what they're trying to do. Yes, you know, we're going to play songs that can, you know, are going to sound really great in the stadium. At the same time, you think about that and you think, well, 
it's going to be sort of dumbed down and it's going to be really obvious. Haynes add a, adds a layer to these songs that I think really makes them hold up beyond the fact that they just sound really good, really good ear candy. She's talking about this idea of the temptations of, you know, gold guns and seduction of being a popular band and how it's very tempting to want to be that. Here's a band that's been around for about 10 years. But they're thinking about, you know what, it's a lot more interesting if you live life outside those prescribed margins. This is a self-released record. They have had offers from other labels, but they've decided once again to put it out themselves. And I think this is a grand statement about just how good this band is. I think it's their best record, and I would agree with you. It's a buy it all the way. So a double buy it on Metrics Fantasies. What do we have on the show next week, Mr. Cott? Next week, we're going to talk to people from record stores, independent record stores from around the country as we celebrate Record Store Day in America. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous. Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, a man Neil Young would be very upset to find out drives a Hummer, is Tori Southside Malatia. <laughs> I look at my telephone book, I look at my telephone book, I can't stand away. Look, I hate to think of it. it took me down to a burning rage. I wrote your name on every page. You don't turn my call. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, this is Tim. Uh, I've been listening to Sound Opinions for a while. Got hooked uh, when I was living back in North Carolina on... Uh, listening on WUNC. Now we actually moved to France, and uh, we've been amazed by sort of the lack of, of French pop actually on French radio. And so that's why I'm calling, because I, I was listening to your uh, episode about what was going on at the uh, South by Southwest down in Austin, Texas, and I think it's hilarious that the way that two Americans living in France get the latest on uh, the French pop sound is by listening to what uh, a whole bunch of Texans are listening to down in Austin. So um, anyway, we're really into that Yell album and have been uh, jamming out to it in our apartment. Keep, keep it coming, and, and thanks for, for all the good shows. Okay. Josh calling from Manhattan. I just have to say, Jim, you totally drank the Kool-Aid with that She Creatures pick. Um, but I also have to say that I, I understand where it's coming from. I write about wine for a living, and when you are at a tasting and there are 40 Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignons that you're tasting, and then all of a sudden you taste a Merlot, it doesn't matter how bad it is. It's just a relief to your palate. And I have to think that that's what happened because that music was really bad. You know, you said if the music wasn't there, then it would just be kitsch. And I got to tell you, the music wasn't there. Anyway... Keep up the good work. Thanks for covering uh, South by Southwest again this year, guys. Peace. Hi, this is Rick in New York. Uh, 
I have a bone to pick with you, Jim, in your review of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's third album. You made an interesting comparison to The Strokes and Franz Ferdinand. You said that while the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's were trying fresh things on this album, their contemporaries had, quote, ran out of gas. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with you on that point, especially on The Strokes. Their first album is head and shoulders above number two and three. But you, Jim, struck me as an odd person to make that point since you gave both Tonight, Franz Ferdinand and The Strokes' first impressions on Earth by it rating. So what gives? Well, thanks a lot. Love the show. Love the website, too, so I can go back in the archives and hold you guys accountable. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Andrew calling from Chicago. I just want to say I was thoroughly pleased with your review of Amadou Sam's uh, Welcome to Mali album. Uh, this is an album that I first heard about in, uh, I believe it was the January issue of Time Out London. And I've been listening to it for months. I think it's a fantastic record. I love the blend of great West African music with the classic blues beat that you hear, you know, you've been hearing for decades. It's a terrific album. I put it up there on my list with another great album out of Brazil, uh, El Guincho's Eleganza. I think both of these artists are producing great, great world music that is universal, truly world music. And I love that you guys gave it due time on your show today. So thanks very much. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.